Well, let's, let's look at Hosea chapter 2. So, again, if you want to find it, uh, if you're flicking through and you find Isaiah, and then go to Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea. So, it's, find one of those big books, then go on a bit forward and you'll find Hosea after Daniel. And you may remember that um, uh, where we introduced this last time was that the first three chapters are quite, in some respects, autobiographical. So they're about Hosea and his wife, Gomer. And uh, he's going to, uh, and God has a particular reason for that, which we'll get into. Um, and uh, in the first chapter, we looked at um, what God had called Hosea to do. But, uh, but then there's a switch that comes in chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 2 down to 13. And... Uh, hear what God has to say, uh, particularly to, to Israel. But let's, uh, let's hear God's word. Plead with your mother, plead. For she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. She put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land. Kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her her way with thorns, And I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my and flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts, And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I'll punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she turned burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging chapter, or section of a chapter. And Father, we pray you'd help us to draw from it what you would have us learn. That you'd be amongst us and help us to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started looking at Hosea last time. And uh, Hosea is a, a prophet of God, living in the 8th century BC. And uh, he's in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, working amongst the people there, not in the south, in Judah, in, 
in and around Jerusalem, unlike Isaiah, but he, Hosea is in the north. And uh, we noted last time how, how God had called Hosea, and uh, when he was called by God to be a prophet, he called him to do a strange thing, uh, to take a wife of whoredom, which is, kind of means a wife that's connected somehow with prostitution. And it's not entirely clear what, what is meant there by a wife of whoredom. Um, perhaps it means that she was fickle in her, her affections and, in the, and then she would become that way later. Um, we don't really know. Um, it's not really that clear. But we shouldn't doubt that it was a genuine marriage, that uh, Hosea uh, loved Gomer and uh, married her and... Uh, wanted to have his, spend his life with her and have children with her. But the thing we need to remember is that, is that the Lord is at work in the marriage uh, to, to communicate an important message to Israel. So, so Hosea is not only the husband of Gomer, but he's a prophet of Israel. And he's to communicate a message to the whole of Israel. And God is going to teach Hosea that message through his marriage to Gomer. And you see, God is portrayed in the Bible as a husband, and a husband to his wife, Israel. So Israel is treated as a, as a wife here. And, and so the gravity of, the, of God's message to Israel is communicated through Hosea and the the stresses that he will feel and experience with Gomer in, with a wife that is, is going after all sorts of other lovers. And so, so Hosea, in a very real sense, gets to, to feel the significance of what God is saying about his relationship to Israel. Because Hosea is living it. And discovering what that means. Experiencing, he's experiencing Gomer's unfaithfulness. And so he has that sense of God's uh, displeasure at the people of Israel. It's, it's often said that um, you know, preachers won't preach the truth effectively until they themselves have received the message. That's a very important thing. You should be praying for your pastor and anyone else who's preaching here. If they're going to preach them the word of God, they feel the message themselves. Because otherwise they're not going to communicate very effectively. It would be an academic ex- exercise. Uh, well, this is what Hosea is doing. He's, through his experience, he's able to communicate God's message to the people of Israel. And last time we worked through the, the significance of the, na- the names of the three children that are born to uh, Hosea and Gomer. Because... What's coming in the short to medium term for Israel uh, is, is three things. Uh, judgment, uh, through this naming of the first son as Jezreel, it's going to be Jezreel is a place of judgment, and Israel is going to experience that judgment. Secondly, there's going to be no further opportunity for forgiveness. Uh, no mercy, the second child, the girl. And there's going to be no all opportunity for forgiveness for their persistent sins is gone. No mercy. And then the third one is the, is the end of all covenant blessings for those people. 
um, not my people. When God says not my people, that's a very serious issue. Um, however, we, we didn't end on that, that sober note last time because we saw that in the far future there's still hope. Because it's not as though uh, God has forgotten his promises. When God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, and all the others, uh, he, he wasn't pretending, and he wasn't saying, uh, well, maybe. <laughs> He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes the, the arrangements change. It's what we call sometimes the covenant administration changes. And, but God's basically, his promises have not changed. And they have not failed, and they will be fulfilled. And so we saw the last time, uh, the end of the section, chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Uh, the ultimate uh, end of all of this is that God's promises will be fulfilled. Um, but not for this generation. <laughs> uh, this generation is going to, str- uh, going to experience the judgment of God. So today we come to look at uh, what has gone wrong with Israel. Begin to look at it in chapter 2. And there's much more to come later in the book. So you better gird up your loins and get ready because it's going to be a kind of rough and bumpy ride for the next few weeks. Um, Except for next week. Next week's a good one, but the following weeks we're going to be just digging into all the dirt in a great... uh, And hopefully that's helpful to us. uh, We're going to see how... How it is that a nation can become like this. How a church can become like this. And forget who God is. Um, So today is going to be pretty bleak reading. Uh, We've read it already, but uh, as we go through it, we'll see how bad it is. But I think it will be instructive for us. It's always instructive to, to see why God says what he says. So the first thing to say is that this is the... Uh, a frivolous title, but the first thing to say is this is the last chance saloon for this generation of Israel. You know, the last opportunity they have uh, to turn from their ways. Now, why do I say that? Because, <clears throat> uh, because of the pleading that takes place in verse 2. Um, and uh, the word says, plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Plead with her. It's like this is the last chance that's being offered uh, to the wife, the errant wife. Now the question is, one of the questions you might be asking is, well, who's speaking here? Um, is it Hosea speaking to his children about their mother, Gomer? Or is it <clears throat> that God speaking to his wife, Israel, about his children, Uh, Sorry, about Israel to his children. And let me digress just a little bit here. Um, I hope we've grasped that that God and his people collectively as a unit is his wife. So, So the whole of Israel as a body is God's wife, if you like. It sounds strange to us, but that's how God is speaking about this union between God and his people. And who are the children of that union then? And the answer to that is that it seems that when, the Bible, when in the Bible God is addressing his people as individuals, 
he speaks of them as sons and daughters. But when he's addressing them collectively as a group, he is speaking about them together as his wife. You need to get your head around this, this kind of imagery that's being used here. And, And this is the kind of thing we see in the New Testament. So the church as a whole is Jesus' bride. But as individuals, we are adopted as sons and daughters, aren't we? And so we are uh, brought into his family. And so to complete that triangle of relationships between God, the body of people together, and the church and individuals, um, how do we look at uh, the church? Well, we see it as our mother. And that's what Paul says. Uh, He says something similar in Galatians 4.26, where he speaks about the, the, the Jerusalem that's above, and he's speaking about the eternal body of God's people, the the elect body of God's people, the Jerusalem above. And he says in Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And so, you know, the the reformers uh, in the 16th century had no problem talking about the church as the mother, your mother. You know, every individual Christian has the church as their mother, just as they have God as their father. And, um, that's wonderful. I, I once had a... So I've got a friend who wrote a hymn once. And he took up this idea of uh, the bride of Christ. But instead of saying that the body... It's an error in the hymn. Uh, but instead of saying that the body of Christ is the bride of Christ, he actually said... You, there's this line that says, I am the bride of Christ. Which is a bit weird if you're a bloke. <laughs> And it actually, actually, it's the wrong category. Uh, because when I think about myself as an individual, I see myself as a child of God. But together, uh, this church and every other local church and, and the universal church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ uh, altogether. So, so back to the question, who's speaking here? Um, is it Hosea about Gomer to his physical children? Or is it, about, is it God speaking about Israel to the individual people. And I think it's that. It's, well, I think the answer to that is, is both. It's deliberately so. Remember that uh, God is speaking through the life of Hosea. So Hosea is expressing this about his wife, but it's also communicating to us how God is thinking about his wife, Israel, and how they have uh, gone off in the wrong direction. We'll come to in a moment. Hosea, therefore, is appealing to his wife about her behavior, and so too God is appealing to the state of the nation, uh, about the state of the nation to the people who are the children of the nation. And so it's coming to the people as individuals and saying, look at the state of the people you're amongst, this nation of Israel. Look what you've become together. And individuals are expected to respond to it. And the appeal is that this mother needs to stop appealing to other lovers. And this comes out in verse 2. Plead with your mother um, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. That's a strange thing to say. Uh, You don't literally whore with your face. 
<laughs> I'm not going to go into what that might mean. Um, nor do you commit adultery between your breasts. It's, it's a metaphor, though. It's, it's a, an image, though, which... And what, what most commentators think this means is, is the way in which some women might make a conscious effort in their appearance to be attractive to men to whom they're not married. So excessive attention to makeup and hair and eyebrows and so on. Or the clothing which that a woman might wear to draw attention to parts of her body to become attractive to, to men outside the marriage. And I think that becomes clear when, in verse 13. He, she's, the, God says, I will punish her for her feast days of the bales when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers. You see, this all dressing yourself up for the false gods, making yourself attractive to the, the idols of the world is, is what is being expressed here. Now, it's perfectly right, of course, for a wife to pay attention to her appearance to please her husband. But it's quite another thing to want to turn other men's heads as well. I think we all understand that. And, of course, that's what it seems as though Gomer was doing. And, of course, this has application in individual marriages. And in our appearance-obsessed culture... Uh, The same could be said of men, young men today, who want to appear buff and all the rest of it, uh, to attract the attention of women. Have you ever seen the grooming products you can get? (laughs) Not that I've indulged, but you know, you can see it. It's bizarre, some of it. But there's a spiritual aspect to all of this. That's a church... the people of God might get confused. And on the face of it, they might look like they're trying to please God, but in fact, in in the heart of hearts, the church is actually seeking, craving something else. Um, Craving the attention of the world around it with all its lovers. And if you're a church, for example, that craves power and influence, and say where money is important, or where having influence in the culture matters... You're on the road to trying to look attractive to the world for all the wrong kinds of reasons. And so that's a dangerous place for a church to be. And it's corrupting to seek after those lovers, not just because the world is corrupt, but because actually the corruption is already there in your own heart, in the church's own heart. So this is quite a serious issue, isn't it? Uh, it could be. That's how a church operates. And it's at this point God says, she's not my wife. I'm not her husband. And as it were, a divorce is about to take place. And all the blessings of that marriage that Israel has enjoyed will be taken away. And that's, the think, the significance of the nakedness and, uh, and the, 
becoming a wilderness in verse 3 uh, is, is all about. The, the taking away of all the blessings of being in that marriage relationship. So, you know, as we look through the history of the church of Jesus Christ, uh, in this country at least, how many churches have lost their way because I've forgotten their husband. Because they have sought the interest of the world instead of sought the glory of God. And as a result, they've slipped into a kind of spiritual nakedness and barrenness. And that these churches have died a sad and poor and empty death. Many churches in the United Kingdom are dying that death as we speak. For this very reason. So, last chance saloon. It's a warning. But here's the second thing um, there's going to be a judgment, and there's, it's a judgment of frustration. A judgment of frustration. So, the chapter goes on in verses 5 through to 7 uh, to speak about this judgment of frustration. We see the heart condition uh, of the wife, for their mother has played the whore. She has uh, conceived them and acted shamefully. And, uh, and so this wife, though she has, uh, she has married, she says, I will go after other lovers. And notice it's not just the lovers that she wants, it's the benefits that, that she believes those lovers can give. Um, and so she, she looks on this bread and wine that's uh, Uh, She wants, and she says, those lovers will give me my bread and my wine, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink, all the clothing that I want, uh, my lovers will give me all the oil and and drink, all the pleasures of life, that my lover will give me, uh, as well as the basics of bread and, and water to live on. And it speaks, you see, of the, the, the secret ambitions that Israel seems to have, where it betrays the fact that Israel has ceased to depend upon God. That actually it believes that everything it has has come from other sources. That they've forgotten who, who God is and that God is the giver of every good gift. And the, and the Lord's answer to this is what you might call a judgment of frustration. And it begins with... Verse 6, therefore I will hedge her up with her, up her way with thorns and I'll build a wall against her. It's almost like God is saying, yeah, you're, you're going to want to go on all these paths and everything, but I'm going to set up some hedges and walls so that it's going to limit your options. In some ways you could see this as a, as a protective act by God to limit how far the, the sin could go, at least for a time. And uh, it's going to be an utterly frustrating experience that you're going to have. You're going to keep bumping up and scratching yourself against these hedges. You're going to keep bumping up against these walls that you can't get through. And it's going to be like, one, you know, I was thinking about this today, that it's one of these, these bad dreams you have. I occasionally have bad dreams, not very But you know those kind of dreams you get into where you, you want to get out of a situation and you're, you're trying to get out and oh, trying to get out and you can't, can't escape anymore. And you get pulled back in and all night you're just sort of restless and re- wrestling with this thing and you just cannot escape. Do you have it? Am I the only one? <laughs> um, it tells you more about me than anything else. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like those bad dreams. You know, following after those lovers in the world is going to be like this bad dream that you can't get out of. 
and you're going to be hedged in. And so it goes on, verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. And it was better for me then than now. I'll come back to the second half of that in a second. But I wonder if you've ever found that in your Christian life. Uh, this kind of frustration. That when you're, you may have secretly at some point, and I can certainly testify to this myself, you secretly decide that there's some sin you want to indulge in. Something you do that you probably shouldn't do. And turns out to be a totally frustrating experience. It never quite produces the thrill and satisfaction that you want. And, um, and you indulged in it, you ignored God in it, but at the, in the end you realize just how totally useless and pointless it was. It was totally frustrating. It didn't deliver what you wanted. You see, the world is full of idols that are shimmering and glittering and uh, they attract us. And we go, oh yeah, yummy, I'd like to have that and that and that. And you go after them, you find there's nothing there. Utterly frustrating. So God is going to bring this judgment of frustration against people who have forgotten him. Well, third thing, and for this, we're going to look at the rest of the chapter from the section from 8 to 13. Um, what's gone wrong? What's the issue that's gone wrong here? You see, the question is, why is it that Israel begins to believe that following other gods and looking to other lovers will actually supply everything that Israel thinks it needs? And the answer begins with a, in verse 8 with a very simple statement. She did not know. She did not know. And knowing here is very significant. Just pause for a minute to just talk about what the Bible means by knowing. It's not just a matter of information download. That's how often we think about knowledge in our Western society today. We, uh, we get knowledge by Googling something. I mentioned this this morning. And how it serves to confirm our biases. Um, you know, and people say, oh, I'm doing my research by Googling things. You're not doing research. You're confirming your biases on Google. And people think they get knowledge by information download. This is a great fallacy, one of the great fallacies of our Western culture, technocratic culture. That knowledge, this kind of information download is knowledge. So we find a definition or we find a description and we think we've got knowledge. And we're suckers for this in our Western culture. I, I don't know if you've been following this. I, I'm a bit of a nerd sometimes and I, I follow these things. But there's a lot of excitement at the moment about artificial intelligence algorithms. You come across this? Chat GPT. Everybody's talking about it. People are trying to sell products with Chat GPT in it. How exciting that's all going to be. And how it's going to change all our lives. And, um, you know, you can find it easily enough on the internet. You can Google <laughs> Chat GPT and you can go there and you can ask it questions. And it will give you long answers to those questions. Because it's learned. It's an artificial intelligence system. It has learned what the, what the internet says about things, I suppose. I don't know all the details. 
I tried it once. I had to write an article for the Birmingham Mail a few weeks ago. Um, you know, as part of their Faith Matters uh, column. I do it about a couple of times a year. It's normally about 300 words. And I said, so I went to chat GPT just for fun. And I said, can you write me a 300-word article about the approach to Easter, approaching Easter? And it did it. It was actually quite good. (laughs) But, I mean, it was a bit dull. It wasn't very interesting to read, to be honest with you. Um, But it's sound enough. It seemed to capture the gospel okay. But, you know, and you'd be glad to know I didn't submit it as an article. (laughs) Because it's like 10 seconds work. Um, but the question is, does Mr. Jack, or Mrs. Chat GPT, what does it actually know about anything? Does it care about what it's splurging out at you? Is its life changed by what it knows now? And none of that, the answer to all of those is, no, it doesn't know anything. It actually doesn't know anything. It can regurgitate information, but it doesn't know anything. And nothing will change through ChatGPT unless we let it and we become stupider in the way that we deal with things. Now, in the Bible, knowing things is a much deeper and richer concept than information download. Especially in the, in, in the area of personal relationships. You see, to know someone in the biblical sense, I don't mean that in euphemistic sense, but you know, as the Bible uses the term knowing, it means a level of intimacy and fellowship and friendship and closeness, number one. Number two, it has a developed sense of loyalty and commitment to that person. Number three, and this is particularly in relationship to God, it's committed to obedience to this God. That's what it means to know God, to be committed to him, to be faithful to him, to have a sense of intimacy and closeness to him. That's knowledge. That's true knowledge. And that's why the knowledge of God is the uh, is, is a source of true wisdom. How are we we going to live well in the world when we're close to God and we know God? But in chapter 2, verse 8, the problem starts here. She did not know. She did not know. In other words, she'd forgotten the kind of relationship, Israel had forgotten the kind of relationship she had with God, and as a result, she had forgotten all the things that she had actually had from the hand of her husband, the Lord. And it's such an easy thing to fall into, isn't it? Uh, I can see it in my own heart, and maybe you can see it in yours as well, that you forget that all you have is from God. I mean, everything. Food, water, clothing, shelter, relationships, work, life itself, the air you breathe, everything. It all comes from God. And instead we begin to believe that at least some of it is down to, to me and to the choices I make without God in the picture. But it's not, it's all of God. This is what James says in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So everything's from God. 
But the last, now the last few verses list what the consequences will be for Israel. Uh, and it's not, it's not very pleasant. Uh, and bear in mind that Hosea is writing into a historical setting where there are great dangers arising. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is on the move. Uh, it's growing, it's been expanding for at least a century, and it's coming. And God is going to use it. And as you bear that in mind, you can begin to see what, why certain things are said uh, here. God is going to bring a number of things against Israel uh, with the following effects. Firstly is the, the loss of crops. You look at verses 9 and 12. Um, and, well, how is Israel going to lose its crops? Well, the Assyrian army is coming and it's going to take all the crops for itself to support its army. <laughs> That's what armies do. They just strip the place bare. There'll be shame and embarrassment for the life that they have lived and, and their nakedness and their emptiness. Look at verse 10. Uh, people will look, the people of Israel will look back at this time in their history and will look with horror. And the exile into captivity that followed was an embarrassment and a time for deep heart searching for Israel. Because their lewdness in this metaphor has been exposed, and so there's so much searching. And then thirdly, in, in verses 11 and 13, we see the destruction of the pagan places of, and habits of worship. Um, and see, this is what God cared about. He cared that the fact that Israel had forgotten him led to pagan acts of worship and giving themselves to these other gods. And I have no doubt that such things started with what sounded like good intentions, maybe small things that didn't seem to matter too much. You know, we want to worship God, but why don't we worship in this way, we say. And uh, we begin to add little things to, to add to the worship of God. And before you know it, you've got this horrible accretion of crusted, encrusted worship that's got nothing to do with the God who, who commanded So all of these things get added in. And you know, the biblical example I can think of there is, um, you may remember the time, that time in Exodus, the people have been saved from, uh, from slavery. And they've, they've come to Mount Sinai and Moses is called up into the mountain to receive the law of God. And meanwhile, the rest of the people are, you know, for the next 40 days, they're kind of hanging around uh, down on the lower level, and they think, well, what are we going to do? And we're going to, well, let's worship God together. So how are we going to do that? Well, let's make an idol, and let's worship that idol. Let's make a golden calf. That kind of represents the power of God. And it's golden and glorious, isn't it? That's kind of like God, isn't it? So let's, let's make this thing, and then let's set it up in the middle, and then we can dance around it, whatever we do, and uh, we can worship God. I've no doubt that they used the name of the Lord in the midst of that worship. And they meant good by it. The trouble is, it's an example of, you can take people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people that easily. <laughs> and all the practices of, that they developed and you know, just fallen into in Egypt while under slavery... They're beginning to use in the worship of God. And it takes time for them to get rid of it. 
And it's easy to forget who God is. And do you know what happens? Exodus 33 and 34. God's judgment comes. It's not pleasant. Because God hates that kind of worship. He really does. But that's how idolatry starts. It starts in small ways. You may not even notice it to begin with. And in the end, it leads to forgetting God altogether. So that's the way this passage ends. She adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. This is the opposite of knowing. Either you know God or you've forgotten him. Friends, this is a, it's a sad story and it's, uh, there's not much kind of positive encouragement here. There's lots of warnings. But it shows us how the human heart works and how it works collectively. So here's some questions. Is it easy for you to forget God in your day-to-day life? You're going to be busy tomorrow, whether you're at home with children or you're going to work, or you've got a schedule that you've, you've planned out. You're going to be busy tomorrow. Will you remember God in it? Will you remember his goodness to you moment by moment? Or will you put it all down to yourself? This is my thing. What I'm going to do. Is there a, a little desire in your heart that distracts you from God? Do you secretly believe that you can find satisfaction somewhere else? How, how are you going to live a fulfilling life? What, what's going to, what are you going to find fulfilling in life? Is God at the center of that? Last question. Are you making a mistake right now in pursuing something you know you shouldn't which compromises your relationship to God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this sobering word again and uh, we thank you that you give us it in order to search our hearts and um, we can compare and contrast our own hearts with uh, the life of Israel. And we pray you'd help us, that uh, you teach us in it to become more faithful. You teach us the state of our own hearts so that we might repent and return. That we would say, as verse 7 says, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. May we have that view that to be with God is better than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.